0: Last week in Galatians chapter 5, we, saw about the, we looked at the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, the follower of Christ, as we live in this battleground between our sinful nature and our redeemed hearts. And our sinful nature, of course, still desires to rebel against God, but for all who are believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit lives most deeply inside of us and desires for us to worship God and to follow Him. And so we discovered... That at our conversion, when we become a believer in Christ, that the Holy Spirit has changed us, has comes to live inside of us, and won't leave us. We're new creations in Christ, most deeply, most fundamentally. We are now new, and we desire to live in harmony with the law of God. And yet, of course, our sinful nature, our habits, our weaknesses, our patterns of selfishness and pride and rebellion are not completely disappearing when we become believers and come to faith in Christ. So we live in this battleground. We saw this last week. And we also saw that there is this very stark contrast of what is produced by the flesh and what is produced by the Spirit. The Spirit produces good things in our lives. The flesh, the sinful nature, produces all kinds of bad things in our lives. So the Apostle Paul is teaching these believers in Galatia in this young and struggling church how to walk in the Spirit, how to be led by the Spirit, how to keep in step with the Spirit. And he's showing them how critical it is that the Holy Spirit is leading and guiding them, rather than them being guided and directed and, and by their patterns of their past and by their sinful nature. So we'll continue to look at this passage as we begin to focus more um, ...over the next few weeks... ...on these characteristics... ...of the fruit... ...of the Holy Spirit. What the Spirit produces... ...in the lives of the believer... ...are described here... ...in Galatians 5. And so for the next few weeks... ...we'll be looking... ...at each one... ...along the way. These are the things... ...that God alone... ...the Holy Spirit alone... ...produces... ...in our lives. So we'll read from Galatians 5... ...again... ...for the context... ...going back to verse 13... ...you my brothers... ...were called to be free... But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit ...what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with one another... ...so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit... ...you are not under law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery... ...idolatry and witchcraft... ...hatred, discord, jealousy... ...fits of rage... ...selfish ambition... ...dissensions, factions and envy... ...drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other, Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. As far as the reading of God's Word, pray with me. Father, again we turn to you as we look to your Word. Lord, we know that you are are kind and merciful and gracious in giving us your Word, and in giving us your spirit that leads us and guides us into truth. That your spirit within us tells us what's true. Tells us these things are true. And tells us how these things relate to our everyday. And so, spirit, we need your help to understand. We need your insight. Uh, we, need, we need you to be uh, speaking to us this morning. Through the word. Lord, we ask your blessing on our time together. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last fall, we were out traveling one weekend. We stopped in an orchard where you can go and you can pick your own apples. It was somewhere out west off of uh, I-66, somewhere in Virginia. Apparently, it was kind of a famous place that I hadn't heard of it before, but then when I was talking about it later, some people that I talked to kind of knew where it was or had been there too. It was a beautiful fall day. We were enjoying the time together as a family. You go into this place, and and, uh, you get... A bag and you get a map and then they tell you all about um, or lots of bags and and you know they tell you all about the different kinds of of trees that they have and the different kinds of fruit and and so um, you know I'm the one who wants to follow the map I want to read about the different kinds of apples that they have listed on the back because they had it color coded so there are like ten different varieties of apples and then there are ten different colors on the map and so you're you're sort of you know I'm like ...looking at them and they're talking about... ...these are the best apples for pies... ...and these are the best apples for canning... ...and these are the best apples for whatever... ...you know, so I'm trying to like get oriented... ...and process through this place in some kind of order... ...and of course the kids have gone three different directions by this point... ...and Aaron always has more realistic expectations... ...about what we can be doing as a family... ...but, you know, eventually I sort of give up on the map... ...and we start walking around... ...and, and realized really quickly that this was huge... This was a huge orchard I mean there were rows and rows and rows of trees, and these trees had were huge trees and they were full of apples and they, I mean they were really full of apples and then they had these these bins where they had these really long poles that have like a little wire uh, catcher thing on them, so you can that 's the technical term is a catcher thing <laughs> i don 't know how to describe it, but you can you can use it to reach up really high and pick an apple, and the apple falls just a couple inches into this, into this cage so that you're not, like, knocking them down a number of feet. And anyway, there were, there were these poles everywhere so that you could get the apples that were really high. And, and so it was, it was really neat. It was fun. We, were, we kept walking and looking and seeing more and more apples, and the kids are running around, and our bags are getting full, and then they're breaking. And, and we also began to notice that under these trees there were there were piles of apples that had fallen, and almost some of them almost so many that you could that you know they were just there on the ground, sort of rotting they were they were all around underneath the tree, almost so many that you couldn 't get close to the tree because there were so many apples that had fallen on the ground and it was it was really amazing and i and I started thinking, do they not have enough customers here you know is there uh, you know, that all of these apples would be fallen on the ground. And, you know, we got there kind of early, but by the time we left, the place was packed. There was, there was almost no place that you could park. There were families and people coming and going. So it wasn't a lack of customers. It was the fact that these trees were so productive and that this orchard was so huge that there was an abundance There was an amazing amount of apples that were there. I mean, we got bags and bags. We made applesauce and stuff for weeks. It was was delicious. It was a lot of fun. But it began... I was thinking about that and thinking about how does God look down on his people? Does he see this kind of abundance fruit? If he's looking over the whole world and he's looking at his church... What does it look like for God to see an orchard like that gathered here at Grace E.P. Church? God is an extravagant God, right, of love and grace and abundance and mercy. And I think that he must see an abundance, must he not, of fruit that's produced in the life of his church, in the lives of his people, all over the globe, all the time. Because he knows that, every, that the Spirit produces every good thing. That the people aren't producing the fruit in themselves. That it's the work of his Spirit producing this fruit in the lives of his people. Imagine that orchard. Imagine the church as an orchard. Full of trees producing fruit. And God looking down on it and seeing this abundance. What is indeed the fruit of our lives. What does it look like from his perspective? We'll consider these things this morning as we think about the fruit and as we think about the first one, the, uh, the first characteristic, which is love. As I mentioned last week, in the context of Galatians, as we read the whole passage there, we see how love is prominent. That love is at the beginning, the f- The summary of the Old Testament law in verse 14, love is at the end, the law of Christ, which of course is Jesus' commandment, his new commandment, which wasn't a new commandment at all, that we love each other, that the disciples love one another. So love bookends this passage, and then love is the first characteristic fruit listed uh, in the list of the fruit of the Spirit in, in verse 22. Before we turn to love, I want want us to think a little more about this idea of fruit, and and what Paul, the picture Paul is painting here. Biblically speaking, of course, fruit can have a very literal meaning, that which is produced by a tree or a vine or plant that that you can eat, and it also has a a metaphorical meaning, a sort of figurative meaning of the outcome of something, the result of an action. The fruit of of your, your sheep are its young sheep. It's babies. The fruit uh, is produced. You know, the biblical the Bible talks like that. That fruit isn't just things hanging on trees, but it's also the outcome or results of action, or or the sense of profit and gain, the fruit of an investment. So it's similar to English. You know, we have these same kind of metaphors, but it's a powerful metaphor and a picture in the New Testament and going back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament tells us that this that this metaphor of fruit coming from the lives of people was, connection, was connected to people's actions and to their attitudes in relation to God, both in, as individuals and as the nation of Israel. Psalm 1 tells us that the one who meditates on the law of the Lord is like a tree planted by the waters which produces fruit in its season, and its leaves don't wither the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and others, spoke about Israel as God's vine, that his his vineyard, that he planted, that he uh, tended, and that he cared for tenderly. But the vine, according to the prophets, produced bad fruit. It produced wild grapes. What one would have expected to come out of such a well-tended vine that God planted and God watered and God set in the land and God cared for, what would have been expected to have come out of that? The choicest of fruits, bounty, wine. Instead, the prophets insist that this unique and special vine of God was producing something useless and disappointing and evil. So it's one of the pictures that the prophets use to, to describe Israel in rebellion against God. As I was looking at these Old Testament passages, I came across this passage in Isaiah 32. I hadn't uh, noticed it before. The prophet speaks of woes that come upon the complacent. As, as, you know, as a prophet. And, and uh, he includes the promise of fruitfulness... It's a result of the coming of the Spirit. Listen to this, Isaiah 32, 14. For the palace is forsaken, the populous city deserted. The hill and the watchtower will become dens forever, a joy of wild donkeys, a pasture of flocks, until the Spirit is poured out on us from on high. And the wilderness will become a fruitful field. And the fruitful field is deemed a forest... Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness will abide in the fruitful field. Until the Spirit changes the wilderness, it will be barren, it will be unproductive. But when the Spirit comes on it from on high, what is the result? Fruitfulness in the field and in the form of justice. In this passage, both both the physical sense and the metaphorical sense, God is saying when the Spirit comes, the wilderness will be transformed into something that's fruitful. And, of course, this is a picture we can look at many other Old Testament passages that describe the same thing. But this one is so, so obviously related to what Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 5. We talked last week about this contrast of the works of the sinful nature and what those live like, you know, look like, lived out in evil attitudes and in evil actions. The sinful nature produces these kinds of behaviors and feelings automatically and habitually. That The enemy you know, tries to produce and multiply selfishness, pride, and rebellion, the things described here in Galatians 5, 19-21. They're obvious works of the sinful nature of the flesh. But the contrast that Paul gives here, it's really interesting. He doesn't say the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. He says the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And I think it's interesting, and I want to explore that with us for a few minutes. What, is it, what does it mean that Paul is using the word fruit instead of works to describe the result of the Spirit in the life of the believer? How, how are they different? On the one hand, we might say there's not much of a difference. But on the other hand, I think, I think there is. I think he's obviously trying to point to something. One, he's connecting it to the Old Testament, to this idea of fruitfulness, and to things Jesus said about the tree and its, and its fruits. But also, I think there, there's, uh, there's something interesting going on in describing what the Spirit produces as fruit. One, one thing to notice is I think that this idea of fruit connects more deeply with the identity of the thing producing it. In other words, the apple tree produces apples. The pear tree produces pears. The apple trees don't produce pears. The kind or type or species of tree is determined to produce and reproduce according to its own kind of fruit. So also Paul is saying the spirit. If the spirit is living inside of a person, if our identity and allegiance have been most deeply and fundamentally changed, if indeed God has made us a new creation, then what we produce is different. Fruit is connected to the kind of plant. The idea of works isn't isn't so connected. Fruit is, you you see what I'm saying? It's it's kind of inherent that fruit produces, uh, that the the identity of the the tree is what produces the identity of the tree. ...of the fruit. Second, there's fruit is this idea also... ...of something that's gradually produced. There's a lot of tending and pruning... ...and cultivating before a single fruit is produced. According to uh, the internet... ...it takes... I, ...I looked at one site... ...so I'm not a horticulturist... ...I found one, one site... ...so take that for what it is... ...it's a sermon illustration. It takes six to ten years for a standard apple tree to produce any apples. Now, in the Christian life, we don't expect that same kind of lag time. God is at work changing us right away, sometimes in very obvious ways. But we do see that maturity takes time, that we often lose in our battle against the flesh, even when we've been believers for a long time. Sometimes we get better at repenting than we are at actually doing the right thing the first time. Which is a good thing. It's good to, to get better at repenting. But again, the point is that fruit is not produced fully and completely overnight. Different fruits grow at different paces according to the type of tree. Fruit may be visible. It may be growing. It may be small. It may be unripe. It may be there in stages before it comes to maturity. And in fact... Maturity is something that we won't see in this life fully. And and then on the flip side... ...real spiritual maturity may actually be best measured... ...by the maturing of the characteristics in which we are weakest naturally. Everyone is in the process of maturity, right? On the process to maturity. Everyone still has weaknesses and flaws and habits... ...because of which someone could say to us that we're immature... ...in these particular areas. So we live in this tension... ...in which the Spirit dwells in us immediately... ...but the Spirit works in us... ...sometimes seeming in a way that seems slow... ...in a way that seems halting... ...particularly in the areas where we're weak. And so those are the areas in which... ...we have to rely more on the Spirit... ...and the areas in which we can see... ...maturity coming... ...in areas where we struggle the most... Finally, there's this the the idea of fruit also, the promise of the Holy Spirit producing fruit in us, gets us to a place of understanding that this process is um, it's inevitable. An apple tree won't produce pears, an apple tree will produce apples. Right? Jesus promises in John 15 that if we abide in him, then we will produce much fruit. He's the true vine, we're the branches. If we stay connected to him, then we will produce fruit. And growing things have power. They grow inevitably as long as they have the right conditions. Soil and sun and water. In our neighborhood, there's a house that has a boat sitting beside the house. And uh, what was once you know, a seed and then a sapling is a uh, was growing under that boat. And I don't know how long, but I guess this boat hasn't been moved for a long time. Because the tree that is now there, that was once a sapling, has grown up to multiple inches in diameter. And it's grown up between the boat and the trailer. So there's now this this sort of big tree that's half the size of the house, not quite up to the second story, perhaps, that's grown between the boat and the trailer. And you wonder, if this keeps going, it will lift the boat off the trailer. Right? This little tree that started as a seed as a sapling will be able to move a boat. I read a story this week about an acorn that, that was planted in a cemetery... And it grew up and, and made a crack in, in the marble and, came a, and a tree came up out of a slab of marble. Right? There's, there's power in things that grow. It may not look impressive immediately. You know The person may have thought, well, that's, not, that's not a big deal, it's just a little sapling coming up. Well, all of a sudden, if they want to get the boat out, it's going to take a lot of work. Growing things have power. They grow inevitably. They can do more than we would imagine. And of course, this doesn't mean that we just sit back and we wait for the Spirit to produce fruit in our lives by default. There's an active role for the Christian, as we'll see. But we trust that God has promised to make us more like Jesus, to put us on a path of sanctification towards glorification and perfection someday. And this, is a, this should be and is encouraging for us even on our worst days. That God is at work. And that it's inevitable that our lives would produce more fruit as we walk with Christ. One other thing I would notice here as we think about this idea of fruit. Is that fruit, the fruit of the spirit is actually singular. I think we generally think of these characteristics as different kinds of fruit. Like there are nine different fruits of the spirit. But Paul isn't actually using it that way. He's not talking about a bunch of fruits. He's describing a single kind of fruit that is multifaceted. That has these different characteristics. These different, these different uh, facets to it. And so the fruit of the Spirit is also not... It's not uh, personality characteristics. It's not gifts. It's not talents. It's not human traits. It's not from us or naturally a part of human nature. Now, certainly, some people seem more patient, more joyful, or more kind than other people do just generally. Believers and unbelievers alike, right? Sometimes believers can look as good at some of these things as uh, unbelievers can look at as good as some of these things as believers do. Um, we were in our... Um, at Betsy Ann's parent-teacher conferences, her kindergarten conference this past week, and I was reminded how amazing a, a teacher she had who must repeat herself a hundred times a day, day after day after day, with a group of whatever, 20 kindergartners, how patient a good kindergarten teacher is. Now, I don't know, of course, if this woman is a believer or not, but this idea that some people are more patient than others, and especially kindergarten teachers and preschool teachers and other people who have this ability to be patient with children and to see them grow and learn. It's, it's, it's amazing to me. That's not my gift, of course. But that's not exactly the patience that Paul is talking about here. It's not something that's produced naturally in people as a characteristic trait, because we wouldn't need the Spirit if it was. What Paul is talking about is a fruit that looks like this whole thing, that looks like love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and goodness and self-control and, you know, all of it together is this fruit that, by definition, supernaturally, the Spirit is producing in the lives of God's people so that's a little bit about this picture of fruit and fruitfulness and how, how the whole image is working. Let's look at love. Love's the first descriptor of this multifaceted fruit of the Spirit. What does the Bible teach us about love? Well, how long do you all have? With a simple glance at the Old Testament and the New Testament, you find that this, there's a wealth of information about love. The love is the fundamental and ultimate expression of God towards his creation, towards his people. It's the ultimate expression of the follower of Christ towards God and towards others. It's the most important, what would you call it, characteristic, virtue, trait, action, attitude. All of these things rolled into one. Love is the most important one. And if you think about what the Bible teaches about love, and you begin to read again and again, you realize very quickly how unloving you are. Love binds everything together in perfect unity. Colossians 3.14. How much disharmony is around us, in our lives, in our hearts, in our world, in our relationships. Love binds things together in perfect harmony. How much do we struggle to live in harmony. It's difficult for us to kind of get our... Get, ...understand all that the Bible teaches about love, of course. It's difficult because we speak of love in many different ways... In, our, in, ...in English, in our culture. Some of which have nothing to do, of course, with the biblical notion of love. And there are multiple words in, uh, for love in the New Testament... ...and in the Greek language of Jesus' day. The most common uh, in biblical Greek... And one, of course, here is is agape, which, if you've been around church for a while, or even outside of the church, it's become a a common enough word in English. My spell-checking didn't even flag it. I was surprised. Agape is a word that has, you know, has come into our language. But the history of it is really interesting, and it's really complex, and if we had a chance to study how it was used in the ancient world in contrast to other words for love, it's, it's, really, it's, it's really kind of fascinating. Really quickly, I'll go through the three basic Greek words which are used in the New Testament and were used in, in that culture to describe love. Um, one, the first is eron or eros, from which we... Um, ...was the most popular expression of love in, in ancient Greek. It was characterized as passionate love. The god Eros was the master of this kind of love. It's the love that's, that's powerful... ...that was sought after in connection to both... Sex, ...sex and pagan religion. And of course in temple prostitution... ...those things came together in, in the Greek and Roman world... ...in such a way that there was... ...that that was the thing... ...that was the kind of love if we could call it that, that was sought after. It was, to, uh, it was intoxicating. It was to be grabbed at every cost. It was to be held by the one who would get it. It seeks its own satisfaction. It has this powerful and sort of magical and mysterious character to it. It compels and controls the actions of a person. That's one kind of love. Philia is a brotherly love from which we get the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Um, It's a love of friendship, a love of humanity. It's a noble love of loyalty and companionship. But agape is the main New Testament biblical word, which is the least common in ancient Greece, occurring only rarely in classical Greek. So the Apostle Paul, and the Apostle Paul, of course, uses it, and the Bible uses it, many, many, many times, hundreds of times in the New Testament. There's no letter of Paul's 13 letters that don't feature prominently the importance of biblical love, of agape. It's different from eros and philia in that it's a love that makes distinctions. It's a love that chooses and keeps its object. It's a free and decisive act determined by the lover. It's giving and active on behalf of another. And as the Old Testament was being translated into Greek, so this was two and three centuries before uh, the birth of Jesus, agape was the word that the translators used to describe the Hebrew word for love. So the meaning of agape in ancient Greece, or in, in the language of that time, was being influenced by the biblical Old Testament concept of love. What's the biblical picture of love that we see? How is it different from from the love of the Greek world? In the Old Testament, we see that love has an exclusivity about it. The love of God for his people is chosen. It's decisive. It's jealous. God chooses a man. God chooses a nation from among thousands to be the object of his love. It comes from the heart and the will. It's not something that that just sweeps over you. But it's something that's also ready for action and that's expressed tangibly. So this Greek word, agape, gets uh, gets the Hebrew picture of love from the Old Testament sort of poured into it, and then the New Testament comes along and defines it and fills it out gloriously so that we see the depth of biblical love being uh, finding a home in this word. The New Testament tells us about the supernatural love and, and defines it and gives it expression. And we see the God of love on every page of Scripture. And so for much of the rest of the sermon, I want us to just read and think about I've got a, a number of examples from the Scripture. Of course, there could be thousands more on the sermon outline that, that describe biblical love. Because I think it's, it's amazing for us just to think about it. God is love. Love is from God. As God describes himself to us, he uses this word to say who he is. To say what he does. What his nature is like. What his posture is towards his world and his people. God's love is not isolated within the relationships of the Trinity. God is loving towards all that he has made and especially towards his people. God is love. Love is from God. God's love is permanently shared. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Romans 5, 5. God's love, God's love, God's supernatural love, has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. God's love is secure. God's love can never be removed from us. Words we know. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8. God's love is shown in the calling and the choosing of believers. See what kind of love the Father has given us That what? That we should be called children of God. That's the kind of love the Father has given us. The kind of love that adopts rebellious sinners. God's love is shown ultimately in sending his Son. In this is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And that he sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. First John 4, 10. Jesus said, love looks like this. Greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. That was in John 15, the night of the Last Supper. After Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he was teaching them about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he said, greater love has no one than this, than someone lays down his life for his friends. If you read the New Testament, we see the ultimate expression of love is the fact that Jesus came into the world to die on the cross for undeserving sinners. Biblical love is defined by this one act of sacrifice. There's no greater example of love, no other way that we could describe it better than to see that the perfect Son of God became man and gave his life. For his friends. That's what God's love looks like towards his people. That's agape. Choosing. Acting. Powerfully. What does God's love look like produced in his people? What does agape look like produced in God's people? Scriptures tell us how important it is that we who believe in Christ would understand that God loves us like this. Our understanding of the universe is changed... ...by being made objects of God's love. We should never be the same after hearing this news. When we see the greatness of God's love... ...we're changed and we're given through the Holy Spirit... ...a new ability that this kind of love would also be in us. Someone wrote it this way. I read it this week. Jesus proclaims the mercy of God... As an unheard of event, which has the basis of its possibility in God alone, but now places man in a completely different situation. Jesus brings forgiveness of sins, and in those who experience it, a new and overflowing love is released. So again, as we turn to the scriptures, we see it described. We love because he first loved us. And love is like this. Owe, one another, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians sixteen fourteen. In other words, there's a way that love can be a characteristic of all that we do, whatever we do. Because love fulfills the requirements of God's perfect and holy law. And how do we see that? Jesus fulfilled the requirements of God's perfect and holy law. Jesus loved perfectly. And thus the love that we have is an outward expression of obedience to him. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. By this all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus and Paul and John teach also the opposite which is scary a lack of love the coldness of my heart towards my neighbor and my fellow believer calls into question the presence of the spirit in my life So what do we see this morning how do we grow in this kind of love how do we how do we understand it The connection is clear that as we see God's love towards us, we're compelled to love him in return and to love one another in the church and outside of the church. That's just the pattern of it. But we would be completely missing the point if, if, in, if we read this passage except to see that this is the work of the Spirit, not something that we can just make ourselves do. We need the Spirit to see God's love and believe in Christ's expression of love on the cross, we need the Spirit to produce this fruit in us. And in this passage, Paul encourages the Galatians to walk in the Spirit, then, to walk in that way, to live according to the Spirit. In Ephesians 5 2, he says, Walk in love as Christ loved us. Abide in me, John 15. It means to remain, to stay, to stick together. And there are lots, as we try to make this more practical, I think there are lots of different sort of spiritual habits and disciplines that God promises to use to produce fruit in our lives. Reading and studying scripture, worshiping, fellowshipping with other believers, all of those things. I would mention this morning that there seems to be a specific connection with prayer and love. Paul is burdened by the problems in his churches. He prays that the Ephesians would know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. He prays that the Philippians' love would abound more and more, filled with the fruit of righteousness. Jesus prayed to his Father in John 17, that the love with which you, the Father, have loved me may be in them, and I in them. As we think about how, how can we make this practical for us today, that's, that's obviously one of the places that we can start. To pray for ourselves and for our church and for one another. That we would know God's love. It seems like, as I was thinking about, what, you know, what do I pray about? You pray about situations, you pray about events, you pray for people. But do we pray for our spiritual growth? Do we pray that we would know God's love better? Do we pray that we would love better? Even in, even in short prayers, even when we're frustrated at someone. God, help me to be loving in this situation. God, help me to see the fruit of your Spirit in this situation in tangible ways as I act, as I have to do something, as I have to relate to someone. That's my encouragement for us this morning. God is producing fruit. It's his work in His Spirit, within you. He'll do it. He is doing it. And ask Him to do it. Because He promises that He will. And even more. That He'll remind us of His love for us. That He'll send the Spirit more fully and, and to work more powerfully in our lives. Indeed, this may, may this be true of us that the Spirit would have His way in us more and more, producing the fruit within, and that our love would grow. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are dependent on You. If we think we aren't, we're wrong. We need You to work or else we're in trouble. We need Your Spirit to bring supernatural resolution to problems that we face within our hearts, and how to respond to them. Lord, we need to see fruit in our lives. We want to see fruit in our lives. We want you to produce that in us. We don't want to fake it. So, Lord, we ask that you would work in your church, that your spirit would be active and powerful to show us who you are, to show us what your love is, towards us, how great it is towards us, and to motivate us to then love in the same way uh, one another and our neighbor, we ask it in Jesus' name.